0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, as I uh, as I said earlier, uh, this is the the third talk in this uh, in this series, um, which I'm. I've been calling um, Appropriate Response at the Tipping Point. Um, and I'm uh, inspired by this book uh, by Bob Doppelt, From Me to We. Uh, also from the current issue of Inquiring Mind. Are there still copies in the back for, for people um, on uh, Earth? Are there any Are there any more? really uh, excellent uh issue on um not tonight. not tonight okay uh excellent issue on um uh ecology deep ecology and concern for the environment and um this this book uh is written by um this fellow bob who is a, a systems change expert and also um a um a dharma student as well as uh um something of an expert on climate change he uh teaches up in Oregon uh i think Willamette uh University and uh University of Oregon um and has a a, a an organization that he heads called uh The resource innovation group and he wrote the book he said as a follow-up to a book he wrote um, a few years ago um, on sustainability where he realized that although he he felt good about the book that he wrote it wasn't clear as to what exactly would be needed to shift our consciousness What will be needed to shift our consciousness um, as uh, as more and more uh, climate change affects us all. As it already is, but it seems like it will be uh, continuing in that direction. And he wrote, what he did was take five Dharma principles... But he doesn't talk in terms of the Dharma. It's very mainstream. Um, He did such a beautiful job in explaining these principles in non-jargon, non-Buddhist way. Uh, Very skillful, as he is an instructor, a a teacher, college uh, professor. and we've taken five, these five principles, we've gone through three of them so far, each of them based on a natural law, that is another way of saying uh, the Dharma, uh, some, one aspect of Dharma principles um, that would lead to a commitment to shift one's consciousness. And so far the the three laws leading to um, the three commitments that we've covered. One, uh, the law of interdependence, which means that we are all connected. This is another way of saying emptiness, the emptiness of a separate self, that we are all connected and part of a system much larger than us. And this, these are all supporting this shift of consciousness from me, the individual way of seeing things, to realize that we're part of something much bigger and that we, will, that we need to care for it. When we can see that other perspective, we're more likely to uh, care for it in a meaningful way. So that law of interdependence, understanding that we are part of something much larger than our separate self leads to the first commitment to see the ecological social and economic systems of which you are a part to see that your part see your part in the greater systems first principle see the systems you are part of second law the law of cause and effect the law of karma, actions have consequences, which leads to the second commitment, be accountable for all the consequences of your actions and the consequences on those systems. This is not going to be new to you if this is the first time you're here, but it's seeing um, ecology in this perspective to apply these natural uh, laws which are part of Dharma practice to a global um, consciousness, uh, I, I find it really um, quite, quite brilliant the way he laid it out. The third, the law of moral justice, that once you understand that you're part of something larger, then... Um, You want to, as you become more conscious and see that happiness lies in non harming, that is the basis for the Eightfold Path. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. Sila, right uh, or wise speech, action, and livelihood. That's the basis for. the training the mind and the heart and wisdom to arise. And the commitment that would come out of that is to abide by society's most deeply held universal principles of morality and justice. That that is where true happiness lies. And so to just lead an ethical life will start you making wiser choices in your life, especially as you see more that You're part of a larger system. This leads us to the fourth commitment. And based on what he calls uh, the law of trusteeship. That is that um, once you see that you're part of a bigger system, and you see cause and effect, that actions have consequences, and you are living with integrity an ethical life, then you're understanding your place in that system. If you have greater power, if you have the capacity to influence everything around you, that naturally gives rise to a compassionate, caring stance. That there is a kind of um, universal moral principle that the more power one has over others, the greater is the duty to use that power benevolently. Now, that is a real leap for most people who have power. This would be a very different world if those who had power realized that it is both their responsibility and a joy to um, use that power benevolently. But once you are really aligned with the Dharma, then you see, oh, of course. How could could I want to harm another if I've got the power to relieve suffering? Then it behooves me to do what I can to be uh, benevolent. So he calls this the law of trusteeship. And um, it's really about expressing your caring and compassion. The basic law of compassion being the natural expression of a wise heart. This is what motivated the Buddha to teach after he was uh, awakened. Oh, what do I do now? And I I think I mentioned it here before uh, recently, uh, pardon the redundancy if I, if I have, but there he was awakened, enlightened, saying, oh, wow, well, what do I do now? And at first he, he wasn't so excited about teaching because he said, oh, what if I try to communicate what I've learned and people don't get it? It would be a vexation to me. That's the words in the, in the discourse. And then he saw that, yes, there's, that's what I need to do because there's, it's possible for others to wake up. And so he spent the next 45 years of his life teaching out of compassion. And this law of trusteeship is really also uh, based on the understanding that you don't really own anything on this planet. Somebody says, oh, I own this land. In their minds they do. And relatively, oh, I have the deed. But nobody owns land truly. Nobody owns all the resources on the earth. They might have power and a right to legal right to say what happens to those resources for a while but those resources in a world of interconnectedness belong to us all as Ramdas uh, says we're just accountants in the firm and the the wealth or the material that comes through us is moving through us and when you really see the idea of no ownership which in dharma practice You don't own your thoughts, what a relief. You don't own your emotions, thank goodness, you know, they're just coming through you. You don't own this body, it has its own laws. You don't own anything. To see on a macro level, we don't own the earth, we're part of the earth, we're part of an ecosystem. One very influential part, but the Earth is home to everything that lives on it, and so that shifts our consciousness to being trustees because we have a lot of power and affect what goes on here to an inordinate extent, as never before in in history I was uh, Reading. Oh, maybe it's in here. He talks about um, uh, he, or maybe it's an article I was reading recently. But this is some are calling it the an- Anthropocene Age. You know, the the Pleistocene and the uh, Mesocene, Mesocenic and all of those uh, uh, different ages in uh, in the history of the planet. This is the first time that one species is uh, is the major influence of changes on the planet, which has its downside, doesn't it? But if we see ourselves as trustees, then it has an upside if we can wake up in time. And I'm remembering, as I was uh, um, writing, putting down these thoughts, seeing a, um, one of my favorite performers, uh, musicians, um, a guy named Andreas Wohlenweider. Anybody know Wohlenweider's music? He's the Swiss harpist that writes the most amazing, beautiful music. And he was giving a concert uh, in the Greek theater a number of years ago. A really high guy. And um, he said, "It said something. It still touches me when I think about it." Um, this is like in the uh, maybe about ten years ago, uh, when we were in the around two thousand three, two thousand four, and just the Iraq War was happening, and it was getting pretty intense. And he pleaded. He says, "You know," he said, "You here in America." We look to you that you're part of you're a very important part of our family you're our um, big brother in the in the best sense of the word, and as a as an elder, as a, a stronger, more um, powerful brother, we look to you for support and understanding so you can inspire and, and guide and lead us to a better world. I, re- I remember it was a fabulous concert, but that was the most memorable thing. And just tears were coming down uh, my and many people's eyes. Um, it was this plea, look at your place, look at your place in this world. And beyond just us in in this country, for humankind to see our place in the in the bigger world there's um as uh, Julia Butterfly Hill calls it a joyful responsibility once you see the effect that you have that um, you can really make a difference so here we are trustees. And what Bob does brilliantly in this fourth commitment is look at what being a trustee entails in our society. So he looked at, you know all the, the legal documents of trusteeship. And there are certain duties that come with being a trustee. And he simply applied those duties, those obligations, to being trustees for this planet, which in the, the fullest sense is our living trust. This is our living trust. It's alive, and this is the trust and to see ourselves as trustees, to follow the, the basic guidelines of any trustee. And here are some of the guidelines. One, the duty of loyalty, that as a trustee, when one is um, entrusted with an estate or resources, that the duty of loyalty means that we act in the best interests of the beneficiaries. And the beneficiaries in this uh, this context are all the other beings on the planet and uh, all the generations to come, as well as the human race itself, that we all benefit from good trusteeship So we act in the best interest of the beneficiaries, which means being super fair, no favoritism. This is in, if you are dividing an estate, you want to do it as fairly and impartially as possible. To not appropriate uh, appropriate assets for private gain. A trustee um, should get compensated for the work of uh, managing a trust, but that one of the duties is that there's an equitable distribution of compensation for the efforts of being a trustee. And here's where I'll just uh, share with you a few pretty uh, amazing facts as far as the trusteeship, particularly in the U.S. and uh, and UK, uh, the top top 1% of US earners received 23% of the nation's total income. This is almost triple the 8% share they held in 1980. The top 1% also own over 34% of all privately held wealth. This is uh, in 2007, it's probably jumped since then. The top 20% of the population own 85% of the wealth, while the remaining 80% own just 15%. In the UK, the richest 10% of the population are more than 100 times wealthier than the poorest 10%. And the US, with less than 5% of the world's population, holds about 25% of total global wealth, Europe, with about 11% of the world's population, owns about 32% of the total wealth. So that's 16% owning 57% of the total wealth. And less than 1% of the global adult population owns more than a third of the total global household wealth equitable distribution of compensation is a, a duty another duty of loyalty as a trustee is to become aware and accept responsibilities um, not just to make money but to um, uh, to see the planet the climate and the biosphere as public goods not private assets and then one last um, duty of loyalty to treat all beneficiaries fairly. And um, he makes the case that in certain countries where there is an equitable distribution of assets, uh, namely Sweden, Denmark, and Norway, which have very high standards of living, uh, they have far fewer fewer, um, health and social problems as compared to the U.S. and uh, U.K., and that when people are treated fairly, society as a whole is better off. So this is just common sense. But we have to get it in our consciousness. The Buddha has, in one discourse, by the way, he talks about the, um, the duties of a king. And he said says that one of the first duties is to make sure that the, the poorest of the land are uh, given their needs and necessities because, and there's this kind of sequence, if they're not and there's a big discrepancy between poor and rich, then there will be a a disgruntled segment of the population which will then have an uprising which will cause war and, and chaos in the land. So he spells it out. A good king, a wise king, if you don't want chaos in the land, distribute the um, assets in a, uh, in a way that everybody benefits. So that's the trusteeship, the duty of loyalty. Another one, the duty of prudence, that a trustee must discharge duties with care, skill, and prudence. That means a trustee should avoid risky investments, should acquire knowledge and skills needed to effectively um, act as responsible trustees and educate themselves, and understand how the living trust works and their responsibilities and how to perform them. And in terms of global trusteeship, it means a duty to abandon the idea of continuous economic growth that ec- economic growth is what we're based, is what, what wins. To redesign the consumer paradigm instead of take it, make it, and waste it. To have a, a an understanding of how assets are limited and there's a recycling that's needed. To use resources sustainably. To follow... The precautionary principle which means that the burden of proof is on corporations not to harm rather than on the public burden of proof that it will harm and also to uh, prepare for climate and adapt to prayer for and adapt to climate disruption that uh, to really be seeing in a big picture where this is leading and to have preparation for it, and a duty to monitor and disclose when things are getting out of whack. So he asks, do you see yourself as a trustee? And I'll, before we look at this commitment, uh, I want to just share with you his words. Do you see yourself as a trustee of the living trust, That is the earth. To what extent do you strive to perform your duty of loyalty, duty of prudence, duty to monitor, duty to to disclose? Once you understand that what humans do today will determine the health and well-being of everything on the planet, you must acknowledge that we're trustees of the living trust that is the earth. So, here's the commitment and I'll just put it out to you if you, if you want to. Um, I invite you to go inside and see if this is something that you could take in and take to heart. Realizing that we m- need to make the shift from me to we The commitment to acknowledge your trusty obligations and take responsibility for the continuation of all life on this planet. And as he says, there's a power in taking this commitment inside. You're a trustee in this planet and it needs you. Okay, so now we get to the the fifth commitment, which is based on the Dharma principle that there is, that what we do matters, that basically we have a choice, what he, calls, what he calls the law of free will. And this is really another way of saying that we are creating our karma in every moment. The Buddha said, through intention, we are creating our world we are what we think with our thoughts, we make the world. And to really see that you have a choice, the law of free will, breaking free from the false belief, beliefs that control your life and your organization, and to realize you can choose your own destiny. That what you choose matters. And how you participate in this unfolding over the next few years um, has a very powerful, rippling effect. And he talks about what gets in the way of choosing to participate wholeheartedly as trustees even if you know the score it's not easy to make this commitment and as i was reading the chapter i must say there were all kinds of feelings that came to me where i i know and I've been educating myself a bit on the score. And there's a part that is saying, you know, can I really make a difference? Or what will it take to make a difference? And it depends what day it is for me between saying, what else is there to do? And what can I do? Can you relate to that? And that choice point is really the one to to keep alive and see you are choosing one way or another, you're choosing. And he talks about the things that get in the way and how the process of self-change happens. Um, First of all, he talks about what's called the confirmation bias and I've talked about this as well in in neuroscience that your once you have a belief, your your brain looks to everything that will confirm that belief. And if your belief is what's the point? Forget it. Who are we kidding? then you will tune into all the information that will corroborate that belief. And you, will, you might be aware of the other stuff, but you'll kind of tune it out. And there's actually a lot of very inspiring information out there. We've never been as conscious as well as we've never been as unconscious in some ways. In our consciousness, that can inspire. And once you decide to move towards choosing your destiny and choosing to be a trustee for the earth, then you start to notice all of these inspiring um, dimensions, and you're in the process of change. And he talks about the process of, of change. I thought this is really fascinating. Um, as different stages there's different stages of change, particularly around this subject of um, of climate change and um how the planet is unfolding, the first stage the disinterest interested stage where he says. There can be either four expressions of this: one, the reluctance—that is, you're just there's too much inertia. Oh, you know, I'm I'm comfortable where I am. You know, yeah, it's a it's a it's a problem, but you know, it, it'll just be too much to try to make a difference. Two, the rebellion reason where you have a high investment in the dysfunction. What do you mean? There's no such thing as climate change or whatever. The resignation, where you feel overwhelmed and you lack the confidence to to think that any change can happen. And the rationalization that says, um, oh, it's not my problem. You know, it's... I'm not personally affected, so it, 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 it's okay. They're, they're overlapping, but a little bit different. Reluctance is inertia, and you're comfortable. Second, rebellious. You're invested in not believing. Third, there's a resignation. It's just too much. And the fourth, well, it's it's not it's not my problem at all. Um, and that what changes you, what gets you out of this disinterested stage, which perhaps will come to all of us, is first a disturbance that is like a catastrophe that wakes you up. If you're living in Colorado, maybe going through all the fires or Hurricane Katrina or tsunamis or whatever, you start connecting the dots. Oh my goodness. And this is just like the Buddha saying that suffering is what wakes us up. There needs to be enough of a disturbance to shake us out of our complacency. That's often how we get out of this disinterested stage. Disturbance, awareness building, that is um, getting information that challenges our beliefs. Um, Seeing that you make small steps and they feel good. And having support of—he uh, doesn't call it sangha, but support of relationships that you're not doing this alone. And if you can move out of the disinterested stage, then you can go to the the next stage, the deliberation stage of change, where you say, "Okay, I get it. I've got to. I think I want to be a part of." more consciousness on this planet in an active way, but you're still deliberating. And in order to move from the deliberation stage, goal setting is helpful. But also, he says, you've got to weigh the pros and cons. You're kind of weighing the information. And it's said that we need to see two upsides for every downside in order for us to make a change. Because if it's kind of equal, inertia will win out. Well, I've been doing it this way. I can go along. But if you see the the upsides far outweigh the downsides, then you're motivated to change. And you move to what's called the design stage, where... Uh, you have a clear understanding that I'm going to change. And when I say change, I'm talking about changing to being an active trustee. That's it. And when you have the design stage, it's like you've got a, l- a plan that that works for you that will have a limited number of clear goals that's workable. You don't want to overwhelm yourself. And then... You move to the doing stage, where you say, oh, I am changing. Where you have a different kind of way of holding yourself. And you have a, a positive attitude about shifting your identity. And instead of being bummed out by all the ways that there's so far to go, you are inspired and you start to look for the the good feeling and the successes that that come with that and then you move to the final stage what he calls the defending stage where you're really going from me to we you're an active trustee and you realize I have changed and uh, to or I'm in the process of more and more changing but that's your identity and you want to invite others to, to join you. And finally he says there's three keys to change. One, as I said, a sufficient level of tension or dissonance between your life and, and the facts, and you see, oh my goodness, uh, something's got to give here. Two, a sufficient level of confidence to do what's necessary to reduce this dissonance between how things are and how you'd like them to be, and then to see the advantages of change far outweigh outweigh the disadvantages. So given that, uh, here's the fifth, and I invite you once again to um, take this commitment based on the law of free will. to break free from the false beliefs that control your life and any organization that you're part of and to realize you can choose your own destiny and to choose that destiny as a trustee of the planet. Just wear that for a moment. I have a choice, and what I do matters. And what I do not only matters to me, but to um, everyone I am in contact with. And whatever stage you happen to be, to feel okay about being right where you are, and to know that you're heading in uh, in that healthy, benevolent direction, from me to we. And I I know this isn't your uh, a typical Dharma talk, but it just feels, uh, and I've been so uh, inspired and moved, um, that uh, I appreciate your um, staying with it. And um, I would just invite us all to have those seeds commitment in our consciousness and to keep allowing them to joyfully sprout in our hearts. I'm not saying I have all the answers, and I'm not saying I'm I'm at that defending stage. I can do my part, but I want to be more than just talking it. Um, and so um, we really are all in this together. I know some of you are, have been very active and committed in, in your... Um, love of the planet and caring for it. And and you've inspired me. Um, And we all need to inspire each other. So um, that's the spirit that I'm sharing it from. So we have a few minutes for comments, reflections, anything you wanna bring up, raise. And uh, let's see, here. Oh. Thanks, Andrew. All right. Andrew's the Phil Donahue of uh, IMCW. I heard this
1: morning on NPR that um, the drought that's in the central part of the country, Mm -hmm. that we've not had a drought like this since the 30s, just around the time of the Dust Bowl and stuff like that. Since when? Since the 1930s when we had the Dust Bowl Mm -hmm. and things like that. So much dryness in so many areas at the same time. Yeah. You know, usually droughts are in a smaller percentage here or there and other places are getting rain, but that this huge amount of area having such a drought. Um, so we're at the tipping point. You know, there's yeah. more and more signs of that. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've recently found
1: joy in... A little,
0: a little closer to your mouth,
1: yeah. I've recently found joy in... Cooking, making things that I have been buying in packages before, mm-hmm. such as yogurt. And like, wow, I can make my own cookies. Wow, mm. I can make croutons, <laughs> and that's also slowed me down. Mm-hmm. Had all these other benefits too.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, that's the thing—to just find joy in the small things. That oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah, Linda. I'd like you to say a couple words about the phrase uh, "deep ecology." Say again. I, I'd just like you to explain what you mean by deep ecology. What I mean by deep ecology, uh, my understanding, you know, Joanna Macy uses that that phrase a lot, and uh, John Seed and and, and others, uh, is really just this: to see not just the envirom- environmental problems as things that need to be uh, fixed and addressed with, by recycling and 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 small actions, but to see that we are part of a larger system, to see the just what Bob is saying—the interconnectedness of things, where we are not separate from from where both the the subject and the object, and um, to see our part in the bigger, the bigger picture, uh, not just what I can do to make things better out there, but that it is we that we are, uh, that we are the system that is affecting everything else, and it's all interconnected. That's my, the way I hold it. Do you have any, any thoughts? Jenny, here over here, Jenny.
1: Um, I was re- I was recently asked to help take care of a chicken and uh, a live chicken and um and I <laughs> and I study sustainable agriculture and I and I found myself Having all this resistance to like what committing to this chicken would you know do for my time and stuff, and how I was going to have to you know wake up and earlier in five minutes and feed the chicken and you mm. know let her out and watch her and um, and so I found some of these resistances even that you mentioned for this small action mm. but um, but committing to this little thing of taking care of this chicken has has really's um, been so profound to just connect to like this being that's providing me with eggs and is such a part of, like, my little ecosystem. Mm. And, um, and then also really connecting me to, you know, to, to a food system in a larger way and compassion for this animal and, um, and that often gives us life for us to eat. And it's been really profound, but mm. I had to still move through those commitment things that, you know, you discussed there, even just for this small act. But it's been really profound to move through it and to make that commitment.
0: Mm. So... Thank you very much, and you uh, you give me now the opportunity to um, to do something that I promised I would with with somebody who wrote me, emailed me, uh, a fellow uh, who's who lives in San Diego uh, named Carl. Carl, if you're listening, I'm getting to it because he emailed me. He's been listening to these talks, and he said um, you know he's been enjoying enjoying them, but uh, I've left out one important piece when we were going over some of the, the problems of carbon footprint, um, and that is um, that our the extent of our animal-based diet has a huge impact. In fact, I was quite amazed to find out that it's estimated that 51% of greenhouse gases are due to livestock, the livestock industry. And here I pulled out, I have it uh, on my my phone from this article. The main sources of greenhouse uh, gases from animal agriculture are, there's four. One, deforestation of the rainforests to grow feed for livestock which contributes hugely to releasing CO2 instead of converting it to oxygen. Two, methane from manure waste. Methane is 72 times more potent as a global warming gas than CO2. Three, the refrigeration and transport of meat around the world. And four, the raising, processing, and slaughtering of the animal, which uses massive amounts of water and other resources, 51%. That's just amazing. So our food choices uh, have a huge impact. And so I'm not here to say you know, you've got to change your diet, but you might just consider that each time that you say have a veggie choice instead of a meat one, you're really contributing to the well being of the planet. It's a nice way to, to look at it instead of feeling guilty, uh, you know, if you eat fish or whatever you eat, that you can choose to contribute in a meaningful way. So um, I hope you um, we all keep each other awake as we uh, as we go through these times as consciously as possible. So let's um, just close with a short loving kindness, and I, I thank you for your attention. first reflecting that you are part of a larger system and that your actions matter and your life of integrity matters and your compassion matters and that you can choose your place in this consciously. And let yourself feel the wholesomeness of choosing to care for yourself and the planet. And sending kindness towards yourself and to all beings, may all be free of suffering. May all know well-being. May all wake up to their true nature and may our coming here together be for the benefit of all beings. And including the earth in that, may the earth feel our love and our care and be healthy and thriving May all beings and the earth be at peace, and at ease, and free of suffering. Thank you see you in a month. <laughs>